0: Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett.
1: I think that uh, the mediums studied by the British and American Societies for Psychical Research, those are the mediums that I feel most confident about, simply because they were studied in such depth. For example, the medium Mrs. Piper, she was originally from Boston, and then she was brought to England to see if she was somehow employing confederates in Boston. Obviously she wouldn't have any confederates in England, the results were every bit as good. They had her trailed by detectives, never found the slightest suspicious activity from her, certainly seemed to be genuine. If you enjoy Conspiracy
2: Unlimited, why not become a Conspiracy Unlimited Plus member? For just $1.99 per month, you'll gain access to two bonus, exclusive, commercial-free episodes per month, plus access to my back catalog of episodes. To subscribe, just go to ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com and click on Gain Access to Premium Episodes. Again, Go to conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com and click on Get Access to Premium Episodes or click on the link in the episode notes. Conspiracy Unlimited Plus for less than $2 per month. Why not sign up today?
0: Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. pursuing the truth wherever it leads.
3: Chris Carter is with us. He's a writer-philosopher who affirms the evidence of life beyond death exists and has been around for millennia, predating any organized religion. He focuses on three key phenomena in the book, reincarnation, apparitions, and communications from the dead. He reveals 125 years 125 years of documented scientific studies by independent researchers and the British and American societies for physical research that rule out hoaxes and hallucinations and prove these afterlife phenomena are real. Chris Carter, how are you? Fine, Richard, how are you? Very well, and congratulations on science and the afterlife experience. 125 years. Um, of studying this phenomenon. Walk us through some of the highlights in terms of experiments and studies that have been conducted during that vast amount of time.
1: Well, the evidence actually goes uh, long long beyond the last 125 years. It was just in the last 125 years that there's been a systematic examination of the various forms of evidence which suggests uh, the continuation of life after biological death. Uh, during the 1880s, A number of leading intellectuals in both England, the United States, and uh, other European countries came together, and these people were disillusioned with the simple faith of their forefathers, basically because of the rise of uh, Darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection operating on random variation, and – the doctrine of materialism, which essentially states that everything has a material cause, uh, was starting to become prevalent in society and these dissident thinkers longed to take on the materialists at their own game. And so a number of them, Henry Sidgwick, Cambridge philosopher, Oliver Lodge, one of the top physicists of his day, Frederick Myers, a classic scholar, uh, the Balfours, one of whom became prime minister of England – uh, William James in the United States. They formed the British and American Society for Psychical Research. And they began an in-depth study of apparitions, um, deathbed visions, and uh, more than anything else, um, alleged communication with the dead via human mediums. And the evidence they uh, gathered is actually very impressive. It, and when you present that kind of evidence
3: uh, to... The scientific community. Even people like uh, Dr. James Stein, I don't know if you're familiar with his work. Again, uh, a skeptic that I have a lot of time for because he's willing to engage and, 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 and uh, uh, not just debunk. But because those people from the scientific community employ the scientific method, they want repeatable, uh, observable phenomena. And, and when it comes to the, the paranormal or the supernatural or apparitions... You just you don't get that. You can't put it under a microscope, and so forth, and and therefore you'll never be able to satisfy them with simply, you know, uh, reams and reams and reams of anecdotal evidence. Someone saying I saw this, and even if it's corroborated by someone else, that's just
1: it's never going to be good enough for them, is it? Uh, Sorry, Richard, I disagree with that. Um, First and first of all, much of the evidence is not anecdotal. Much of the evidence, especially for psychic abilities such as telepathy, is experimental in nature, and it has been repeated in laboratories around the world. No, that's true. I'm sorry. I was um, I was
3: referring to things like apparitions. Um, uh, you know, uh, yeah. But let's yeah. We'll we'll, we'll talk about definitely psychical uh, uh, research or uh, psychic research because I I had a, an occasion to meet Russell Targ up in Palo Alto recently. Just published a book, and he told me right. that that the evidence uh, for things like ESP. Um, you know, it's there's more evidence for that than there is, for example, that that bare aspirin can cure headaches. Uh, for him, you know, the, the the jury's in. But let's talk about apparitions, for example. I mean, how do you convince a skeptic with with what amounts to essentially anecdotal evidence?
1: Well. I discuss uh, across two books. My previous book was Science and the Near-Death Experience, which I believe we discussed on a previous show. Much of the evidence there is not anecdotal. Some of it is, of course, because somebody has a heart attack at home and they – you know, later relate their strange experiences. But much of it is not. Much of it has been done in terms of prospective studies by cardiologists around the world. Cardiologists are, of course, physicians who work with people who've had heart attacks or suffer from heart disease. Mm-hmm. And they've done these prospective studies, which means that they will interview everyone who's been resuscitated following a heart attack, say, over a 12 or 18-month period. And then they'll gather their data that way. Um so that, those are not anecdotal reports. Uh, with regards to the three lines of evidence that I discuss in my latest book, Science and the Afterlife Experience, those would be children who remember previous lives, apparitions, as you pointed out, right. and, uh, communication via human mediums from, apparently from the deceased. Um, I, apparitions, yes, by their very nature, the reports must be anecdotal. I mean, how can you, how can you do an experiment with an apparition? Um, on the other hand, uh, the studies of apparitions have been very systematic and uh, allowing researchers to form generalizations about what apparitions typically look like, how they behave. Uh, most of the time, for instance, um, the person seeing the apparition at first believes they're seeing a living person because apparitions typically appear completely normal and so and sometimes behave with a purpose of their own. Right. And I also mentioned cases in which animals have perceived apparitions.
3: Well, that's interesting. I mean, uh, I, I don't know how one would would quantify that. But how useful are photographs, video, and let's say audio recordings or EVPs in this field? Because we all know, in in the era of, of Photoshop and so forth, I mean, you can you can you can make anything look pretty real uh, on a photograph or video uh, are those useful in in uh, providing evidence for apparitions do you think at this point
1: i think they have a role to play but i didn't discuss photographs of apparitions i didn't discuss electric voice phenomena the evps you mentioned for a good reason i want to concentrate on the most solid forms of evidence The James Leininger case, to me, that's one of the most compelling cases, evidence
3: of of reincarnation, although, again, to lay my cards on the table, it doesn't fit into my faith tradition uh, as an Orthodox Christian. But I I believe, having witnessed a number of past-life regression sessions... That there is something genuine going on here. There's a real experience. I don't have an explanation. I know you offer some alternative theories. But let me get your take quickly on on, on the Leininger case, uh, Chris.
1: Well, uh, that's not a case that I discuss in my book, so I have to admit that I'm not very familiar with it. I would like to say one thing, though, and that's that uh, people of faith have absolutely nothing to fear from reading my book. Um, You know that uh, at one time, a belief in reincarnation was uh, quite common among christians uh, especially
3: in southern europe yeah that's what i understand yeah no i i certainly i i agree there's nothing to fear in this book i just i i having again witnessed this these past life regression sessions i think there's something real here i just don't know what it is talk to me about some of the 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 prevalent cases that you you talk about the the ones that stand out for you in terms of 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 reincarnation some of the best examples
1: reincarnation uh, is typically associated with the religions of the Far East, with Buddhism, Hinduism, and so forth. But uh, the fact of the matter is is that uh, reincarnation is a fairly common belief. It's found all over the world. Various tribes in Alaska and on the uh, western coast of the United States and Canada, Native American tribes, I mean, uh, believe in reincarnation. It appears that the Druces of Lebanon believe in it. Um, uh, the Scandinavians, the Vikings apparently believed in reincarnation. Some of the ancient Greeks, such as Pythagoras. So the belief in reincarnation has not been historically confined to uh, Southeast and Far East Asia, but rather has been found all over the world. So the question is why? Well, I argue in my book the reason is is that children all over the world uh, have historically and up to the present time claim to have remembered previous lives. Typically, between the ages of two and three, the child starts discussing memories of a previous life, often giving the person's name, their occupation, where they lived, and uh, this will continue. They'll often show characteristics of the individual. Sometimes they'll behave more like adults than like children, and typically the memories begin to fade by around 6 or 7 they're usually gone by the time the child's 8 or 9 years old although some of the uh, uh habits uh, of the previous personality will persist so a-, a psychiatrist named Ian Stevenson began studying these cases in the 1960s in a very systematic manner and he eventually concluded that uh reincarnation is the most plausible explanation of the data um So as I said, everywhere such cases are found, they usually begin talking about it at a very early age. Um, In almost every culture, male subjects outnumber the female ones. And interestingly, the proportion of previous personalities who died violent deaths greatly exceeds the incident of violent death in all cultures in which these cases are found. So there seems to be a sense of unfinished business ...about these children who claim to remember previous lives. Well, a, a perfect example would be the, the Pollock twins, the case
3: of the Pollock twins. You meant, mentioned violent death. Talk to me about that case.
1: Oh, th- yes, that case occurred in England. Um, let's see. Uh, yeah, that was in 1957. Uh, a crazed automobile driver killed these two little girls. One was 11, the other one was uh, 6... And uh, the parents were grieving, but their father, for some reason, believed the two girls would be reincarnated. And uh, a few months, few months later, uh, his wife became pregnant. He thought that his wife would have twins. She went to see a physician. The physician said, "No, it's just a single fetus. There's no twins." But lo and behold, twins were born. And uh, as soon as the twins began to talk, they remembered uh being the uh, the girls who were run over by a car a few years previously
3: and they had some pretty and interesting th- distinguishing marks in terms of birthmarks and so forth that matched the, the the previous children
1: yes they had birthmarks that matched the previous previous children and uh, yeah and uh, they claimed they claimed toys that had belonged to each of the child uh, each of the deceased sisters and um, and uh, yeah, they also identified when they, when they went back to, they, they took a car trip one time to their old neighborhood where the where the previous personalities had grown up, the previous two girls, and the girls spontaneously uh, mentioned things before they appeared, uh, a park where they used to play, and so forth. It's, yeah, it's, it's a remarkable case, and and you know there are
3: you cite um, a number of them in in the book, but you know there are just and I've read. Um, um, Stephen's work and, and, uh, I think he's since passed away, uh, but he's got, I think there's someone else who sort of picked up that, that torch and is, is continuing to do that work. Um, but you offer some, what do you think might be going on? Are there are alternative theories as to, to, to reincarnation. What, what, what do you think some of those might be?
1: Well, there's cultural fantasy. There's actually three ex- counter explanations. Cultural fantasy, fraud, and super extrasensory perception. Um, with regards to cultural fantasy, well, those can't explain cases. Those can't explain the universal nature of the cases. The children typically begin to remember the previous lives. As I said before, between the ages of two and three, and the memories fade. So by the time they're eight, nine years old, the memories are usually completely gone. Um, it also doesn't explain the high proportion of of previous personalities that ended their lives with violence. With violence, uh, it's much higher in all societies than the incident of violent death in the general population. So it can't explain that. It also can't explain cases in which uh, children claim to remember previous lives who are living in cultures where reincarnation is not a common belief. Cultural fantasy may explain some cases in perhaps India or parts of China, but it can't explain cases in which uh, the parents don't, don't want to hear they have children talking about previous lives, yet the cases continue. What about super uh, with, ESP? Well, there's a number of difficulties with uh, extrasensory perception or super extrasensory perception uh, as an explanation. Um, for example, it can't explain why subjects have difficulty recognizing people and places that have changed since the death of the previous personality. Uh, they can't explain, you know, why they don't recognize houses that have changed color or people that have grown up. And um, typically, information acquired clairvoyantly or telepathically is not experienced as something remembered. And uh, usually the best telepaths make a predictable number of errors. We can see that some of these children uh, have made virtually no errors. And another difficulty is that the ESP hypothesis would seem to predict that we would occasionally find more than one child claiming to remember life of a certain deceased person and making statements about that person's life. But I haven't found a single case with more than one child making such a claim. Um, these children often show uh, – display the personality of the uh, deceased person whose life they claim to have remembered. And sometimes, often, these children convince uh, living friends and relatives of the deceased personality that they really are that deceased person come back. So are we really going to believe that a seven or eight-year-old can impersonate a deceased person they've never met well enough to convince their living relatives and friends? And uh, also, uh, extrasensory perception Perhaps can be used to acquire knowledge, but it can't be used to acquire skills. And some of these children have spoken in languages which they, which the previous personality spoke, which they didn't. Um, they've displayed, they've shown skills, skills in complicated dances or in uh, playing the Indian Indian drums. So, for all these reasons, extrasensory perception uh, cannot explain children who remember previous lives. What do you think the, the evidence indicates is the
3: actual relationship between the mind and the brain?
1: I think it indicates that the brain works as a two-way receiver transmitter, sometimes from body to mind, as in sense perception, and other times from mind to body, as in willed action. Now, the rival hypothesis is that the brain produces the mind, and I believe this has been proven false by the data Um what many people don't realize is that there's a lot of evidence to this effect, and I examined this evidence in great deal, especially in my second book, Science and the Near-Death Experience, but I also summarized this evidence, of course, in Science and the Afterlife Experience.
3: The, that's an interesting concept, I mean, uh, that, that, that the brain would produce the mind. Certainly, um, you know, when we have these compelling um, stories of, of people, let's say, who have died on the operating table or have been Placed in some sort of a, um, you know, frozen animated state. Perhaps they've had their their um, you know their body temperature uh, brought down and their heart removed and so forth. Uh, and yet they have memories um, during the time that they were supposedly clinically dead for you know up to an hour or so forth or whatever the time frame is. So that would seem to discount the idea that the brain could produce the mind, since the, in this case the mind is is surviving a physical death Um, so if it's not if it's not the brain producing the mind then does the mind exists outside the body
1: it's difficult to say uh, at our our current stage of ignorance Um, uh, I suppose (laughs) the theory of interactive dualism is essentially that uh, the, the relationship between the body and the mind or the brain and the mind is a is a two-way relationship. Sometimes from body to mind, sometimes from mind to brain. Um, it seems that uh, the mind, our minds, are attached to our brains during our biological lives, and at death, the connection is severed. And this is what, of course, near-death experiences would indicate: cases of terminal lucidity and uh, deathbed visions. The counter. The counter uh the counter argument or one of the counter arguments is well i mean if the if the, the mind if the brain does not produce the mind then how can you count for um, intoxication affecting our consciousness or a, a stroke or a blow to the head but the simple the simple uh retort is is that any change in brain functioning such as that resulting from intoxication or a stroke should be expected to affect the brain's capacity as a receiver-transmitter just as certainly as its capacity
3: as a producer. You're talking about um, near-death experiences, and, and and I believe it was the uh, in, in Switzerland a number of years ago, they conducted some studies where they were stimulating certain portions, certain cortexes of the human brain, uh, and it was said that they could produce... What seemed to be an out-of-body experience or a near-death type experience by stimulating those cortexes. Um, what, what, what do you think of that? I mean, does that necessarily disprove the existence of of a, a genuine near-death experience?
1: No, not at all. That wasn't in Switzerland. That's was actually in Canada. That's oh, okay. uh, Michael Persinger. Okay, he's a psychologist at Laurentian University, and he's mimicked temporal lobe seizure phenomena with electromagnetic stimulation. Um, I looked at his uh, his data, and what you find is that um, his, his data doesn't, doesn't stack up to his claims. Uh, yeah, I deal with him quite uh, in depth in my second book. Um, but the thing is, in 2004, Persinger's research was dealt a serious blow when a Swedish team attempted to replicate his findings using equipment borrowed from his lab. Now, a team at uh, Uppsala University in Sweden tested 89 undergraduate students, some of who were exposed to the magnetic field and some who were not. Persinger uh, uses a, a helmet which generates a mag- electromagnetic field around the skull. So they used a double-blind protocol. That is, neither the people running the experiment nor the subjects being tested knew what the experiment was testing and whether any particular subject was part of the test group or the control group. And the Swedish team also consulted Persinger's collaborator, a fellow named Stanley Koren, to ensure the conditions for replication were absolutely optimal. So what did they find? Well, their team found no effect from the magnetic fields whatsoever. The only characteristic that predicted what the subjects reported was personality. That is, subjects who were rated highly suggestible on the basis of a questionnaire reported strange experiences when they were wearing the helmet whether the current was on or off. Hmm. So in other words, it's completely invalid.
3: Interesting. Well, even if you could artificially induce uh, an out-of-body or experience or a near-death experience, that doesn't necessarily discount the possibility that the genuine article exists. Uh, we'll uh, come back and continue our conversation with Chris Carter. Science and the afterlife experience. Evidence for the immortality of consciousness.
1: This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer.
2: C60 EVO delivers the miracle molecule ESS60 It's pure carbon 60. Why not love your body and share C60 Evo with those you love? ESS 60 from C60 Evo is a mega antioxidant for increased strength, endurance, flexibility, and a deeper sleep. It's great for pets too. I take a tablespoon every day and so does the mighty Aphrodite. We're both sleeping better than we have in years. And during the day, we have such tremendous energy and vitality. We're both pain-free. In a landmark, peer-reviewed animal study study in Paris, France, rats fed ESS-60 lived twice their normal lifespan. Go to c60evo.com slash richard hyphen or click on the C60 Evo link in the episode notes. Use the code EVRS at checkout and save 10%. ESS-60 from C60 Evo. Order your miracle in a bottle today.
0: Another reality. Richard is a very strong and handsome man, just not in our reality. Although I heard somebody passing him in the hall the other day, and it was good, good a handsome man Richard is. I made that up. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Chris Carter is
3: with us. Science in the afterlife experience: evidence for the immortality of consciousness. You know, after uh, uh, there was. Um, uh, this spiritualist movement uh in England and then later in the United States, and um, I believe there were uh, two young girls uh, they were the fox sisters uh, they were um, involved in some sort of you know mediumship or clairvoyance and and uh, we had uh, you know the uh, uh, these uh, cl- uh cupboards people would uh, we would hear you know knocking sounds in, in the inside these cupboards or they would they would hear a horn playing they would see um musical instruments levitating and all these sorts of things and and supposedly the Fox sisters finally admitted that this was uh, it, it was a hoax uh which you know many skeptics have sort of glommed onto and says you see it's it's all a hoax but there have been a number of um mediums over the years who have been who've been scrutinized uh scientifically and still you know st- Confound or confound the uh, the skeptics. I'm I'm thinking of uh, someone like Carlos Mirabelli, who you talk about uh, in your book, Science and the Afterlife Experience. Uh, Chris, tell us a little bit about Carlos Mirabelli.
1: Yeah, uh, let's see. He was the Brazilian uh, medium. Right, right. Yeah, Mirabelli. Oh yes, yes. Yeah, he um he was a fellow born in Sao Paulo. Uh, late 1880s. And he was carefully investigated by many eminent members of Brazilian society. He was investigated by physicians and university professors and, uh, engineers, chemists, journalists. And, uh, he was never found, as far as I know, his best evidence is never found to be a fraud. He was poorly educated. He spoke only Portuguese, uh, perhaps some Italian because his parents were Italian immigrants. Um, but he, uh, when he was in trance, he spoke over 25 different languages, and he also wrote messages, which purported to come from deceased people in various languages, in Japanese, in, um, in French, uh, in Hebrew, uh, in Syrian. And uh, one, of the, one of the oddest features was he wrote um, three pages in hieroglyphics, which have never been translated. Hieroglyphics.
3: Yeah. Oh my. So how many? So how many people studied him? Some, uh, you mentioned uh, university professors, um, uh, chemists. It's like 500 people or
1: something studied this guy. Um, hundreds of people. Yes. Yeah. Would you
3: Would you say that he is one of the the the, the best examples
1: of uh, of a genuine medium? Not necessarily, because I don't know enough about his mediumship. Um, he certainly seems to have been one of the most powerful mediums who ever existed. But again, I don't know very much about him and some uh, people would say that he occasionally cheated or there's a photograph of him cheating or something like that. I really can't comment on that. I think that uh, the mediums studied by the British and American Societies for Psychical Research, um, those are the mediums that I feel most confident about simply because they were they were studied in such depth and they had uh, – um, with, for example, the medium Mrs. Piper, um, she was originally from Boston, and then she was brought to England, so, so and, and studied in England to see if she was somehow were somehow employing Confederates in Boston. Obviously, she wouldn't have any Confederates in England. She was studying in England. She, the results were every bit as good. Um, they had her trailed by detectives. Never found the slightest uh, uh, susp- suspicious activity from her. So yeah, Mrs. Piper uh, and others um, certainly seem to be genuine. What are what is the the motivation
3: then uh, of of so many of these skeptics that are so eager to debunk uh, not just you know reports of psychic phenomena, but also phenomena such as the near death experience? Are they just um, are they just so married to materialist doctrine that? You know, that to admit that, that this evidence exists would totally de- deconstruct their their existence, or
1: what is it? Yeah, I discuss that in my book. The, you have to, this is something that's peculiar to Western societies, and it basically has to do with the historical conflict in the West between science and religion. Uh, essentially, as I argued in my first book, uh, Science and Psychic Phenomena, this debate is not primarily about evidence. You have to remember that the debunkers and deniers are defending an outmoded worldview in which psychic phenomena are simply not allowed to exist. I mean, it's essential to realize that most of these deniers and phony skeptics are in fact militant atheists and secular humanists. For various reasons, these people have an ideological agenda which is anti-religious and anti-superstitious. Now, one of the pillars of their opposition to religion and superstition is the doctrine of materialism. And that is the doctrine that uh, all events have a physical cause and that the brain therefore produces the mind. Now if they conceded the existence of psychic abilities such as telepathy and if they conceded the existence of the near-death experience as involving a genuine separation of mind from body, then this pillar of their opposition to materialism, this pillar of their opposition, I mean, to religion and superstition would crumble. In other words, materialism is the pillar or the foundation of their opposition. And if they admitted the reality of these abilities or of the near death experience, then this pillar would crumble. And this, more than anything else, explains their dogmatic denial of the evidence. That proves materialism false.
3: It's not something that you cover in the book, but let me just get your take on this. This is an area that I find I've always found fascinating, and I've seen these these famous photographs from the 20s or 30s. Um, people like um, uh, Helen Duncan in England. What they they refer to them as these manifestation mediums, uh, where during a séance um, you would have um, uh, in these photographs. What appeared to be these sort of white shrouded figures emanating from the actual medium, maybe ectoplasm coming out of the medium, or what you know has been alleged to be ectoplasm. What what is your, what do you have a a take
1: on these manifestation mediums, Chris? I did not. I explicitly did not talk about physical mediumship, um, which is what you're talking about in my book. And the reason I didn't do that is because the history of physical mediumship is riddled with fraudulent mediums. Mm most of these people, uh, these mediums, uh, insisted on holding their seances in complete darkness, you, you know, which obviously brings up possibilities of fraud. Um, Houdini exposed several physical mediums. Uh, the members of the American and British Society for Psychical Research exposed several fraudulent physical mediums. Now, Mirabelli was a physical medium, probably the most impressive of them all, but I didn't even discuss Mirabelli's physical mediumship, only his mental mediumship, which is what I, which is what I concentrate on in the book, and which is what the early psychical researchers in Britain and the United States concentrated upon. And there's several reasons for this. Um, a mental medium is someone who, usually a woman who goes into a trance and, uh, then either writes, writes messages on a piece of paper, or uh, in the most dramatic cases of possession mediumship, appears to be possessed by the deceased person who then uses her vocal cords to speak directly to the sitters. Um, with mental mediumship, you have records of everything that the medium said or wrote, and so the the, the issue of mistaken eyewitness testimony simply doesn't arise. And uh, the ability to... Um, to bring forth fraudulent messages is obviously uh, – or any sort of fraudulent behavior is obviously much, much uh, less or restricted with mental mediumship than with physical mediumship. So I concentrated on the mental mediumship. Um, I'd like to read you a quote here. This is from my book where I quote a retired phys- professor of physics named Victor Stenger. He's one of these militant atheists that I was discussing. And here's the quote, 1995. He said, unfortunately, most scientists lack the specific skills needed to distinguish fact from illusion in the world of magic. The universe does not lie. People lie. And so Lodge and other 19th century psychical researchers unwittingly allowed themselves to be fooled by the tricks of professional fortune tellers and slate of hand artists posing as spiritualists. Now, here's something I later on write in my book. Um, I mentioned Mrs. Piper. She was the only professional medium in the group that the British and American Societies for Psychical Research studied. Most of the other principal mediums were upper-class women and some of them well-known figures in public life who used pseudonames and kept their mediumship a closely guarded secret, even from their friends. These included Mrs. Verrill, a lecturer in classics at Newham College and a wife of Dr. A.W. Verrill. Her daughter, Helen, Mrs. Holland, the pseudonym of Mrs. Fleming, a sister of Rudyard Kipling, who lived in India. Mrs. Forbes, another pseudonym, and Mrs. Willett, a pseudonym for Mrs. Coombe Tennant, Justice of the Peace and the first woman to be appointed by the British government as a delegate to the Assembly of the League of Nations. So, you know, at this point, I I write, the reader may recall with some amusement the remark by scepter Victor Stenger which opened part three of this book, quote, Lodge and other 19th century psychical researchers unwittingly allowed themselves to be fooled by the tricks of professional fortune tellers (laughs) and slate of hand artists posing as spiritualists. Yeah, it's,
3: it's often uh, couched in a very snide and arrogant uh, tone when these debunkers are involved in any sort of a dialogue. They rarely dialogue, they often monologue. Um, you, you mentioned Houdini a little earlier, and, and um, I, again, I know you don't cover this in the book, but the the, the much-talked-about um, Houdini-after-death experiment that he supposedly conducted with his wife, Bess, in which he... Uh, on his well, before you know they before he was um, became ill after being punched in the stomach uh, in Mon- in Montreal, he apparently had this agreement with Bess that that if he you know could come back from the other side, he would relate this coded message to her, and supposedly, with the help of a, a medium, I believe it was ford um she was able to do that. Now, my understanding was that initially she said, yes, this happened, it's absolutely true, and then afterwards, maybe through peer pressure or what what have you, she recanted and said, no, it, it didn't happen. Is that uh, is that something that you've looked into at all, the, the Houdini after-death experiment, and what, if so, what are
1: your thoughts? Well, to answer your question, yes, I have looked into it quite a bit, actually. Um, Houdini debunked fraudulent physical mediums, he didn't deal with mental mediums because uh, how could he? It wasn't his area of expertise. He was essentially a magician, so he simply didn't didn't deal with the the, the mental mediums. There was no way he could have debunked them anyway. Um, but yes, you're right. Houdini did have a pact with Bess that he would try to get a message across if message through if he could after he died. Um, Arthur Ford contacted Bess, the medium Martha Ford, and said that he was getting messages from Houdini and he wanted to ha- hold a seance with his wife, Bess. So she did. I believe they held two seances and uh, a message came came in code, the secret code that uh, Houdini and Bess used to use when he wanted to communicate with her um, in the middle of his magic shows. And uh, the message came through and, yes, Bess was convinced that it really was her Harry and she wrote a letter to the journalist Walter Winchell um, saying that – basically to, words to the effect that uh, people have accused me of lying about uh, the message I received through Arthur Ford. Well, I tell you this. Uh, I'm not lying. The message came through, and I believe it was genuine. And she maintained this. But then Harry Houdini's surviving friends, many of whom were militant atheists of this type that I've discussed earlier – they did all they could to try and convince Bess that Arthur Ford was a scoundrel and a fraud, and he just tricked her. And uh, Bess was unfortunately not a very um, strong person. She was easily swayed, um, and uh, she eventually – yes, she eventually did recant. She seems to have been very confused about the whole thing. And and just to be
3: clear, I mean the the encoded message that Arthur Ford received supposedly, uh it was uh, there were there were 10 coded um, words. Uh I just I have them here in front of me uh, off the website. Pray, answer, say, now, tell, please, speak quickly, look, be quick. The 10th word is actually a phrase. Uh and anyway, those coded messages are are um, are, to, are come together to make the word uh to form the word I believe I think is believe. Or Rosabelle, Rosabelle
1: believe Roosevelt. Believe Roosevelt was belief. his
3: nickname for right for Bess. So I mean, there's there's no way Arthur Ford would could have known that beforehand, uh, unless I suppose he and Bess have some who have, as some have suggested, were involved uh, intimately or, or, or so forth. I mean, but there's no really way of or verifying this, uh, or or is there? I mean, is what is there anything else that we know now about this story? that tends to suggest Arthur Ford, in fact, did receive this message from the late Harry Houdini?
1: The problem is it just happened so long ago, and all the principal actors are, of course, long gone. So I don't think we can ever really get to the bottom of it. I don't think Arthur Ford was a, was a scoundrel. He had many uh, admirers, including the astronaut Edgar Mitchell, the Queen of Sweden, among others, and... Uh, People people say, okay, he could have learned about the code through normal means. He could have – uh it was available in some obscure article or something. I'm not sure if that's true. It just happened too long ago, and I don't think we'll ever get to the bottom of it, frankly. But I don't think the Houdini and best case is uh anywhere near as strong as some of the best cases I've described in Science and the Afterlife Experience.
3: Have you ever been to a seance, Chris? No, I haven't. Would you be curious? I mean, I guess I'm curious as to know why why not. Why, why haven't you? This is something that you study and, and write about. Why um, why haven't you attended one?
1: Well, never felt the need, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't mind at some point in the future. I, I know several people who are involved in this sort of research. I don't know any mediums, but I could easily, well, fairly easily, I suppose, find uh, one that's uh, supposedly reputable. Um I had a friend who passed away recently, um, at an early age, um, but a year ago. So I suppose you could say I have, uh, I certainly have reason. Um, but I, uh, the book is not about my own experiences. Right. Right. The book is about uh, serious research into these subjects. What is the state of of research into these subjects today? For
3: example, I mean, I, I mentioned a m- meeting with Russell Targ up in Palo Alto, and and uh, of course he spearheaded the, uh, uh, the the big study of of psychic research at at uh, Stanford. Uh, I guess in the seventies and eighties, it was a period of about twenty five years when they were funded by the uh, the U S military. Um, mm-hmm. But what, what's this? Is anyone doing serious academic research into this field now for example uh with 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 um, near death experiences or afterlife communication
1: most of the research into um, the evidence for an afterlife these days uh is conducted by cardiologists who are doing those studies that I told that I just discussed earlier on the near death experience uh, there's people all over the world uh there's physicians in England, uh, the United States. There's Pim Van Lommel, Dutch Dutch cardiologist in Holland. Uh, he's doing these studies. So most of the re- most exciting research these days is being done with the near death experience. Um, as to why it's not being done, not very much research is being done with mediums. Basically. Um, I think that uh, the best research research has already been done. I think the best questions have been answered. The evidence is about as strong as it's going to get, and uh, I argue in my book that it's in fact very strong. So but I don't think there is a whole lot So done on. in the field of uh, working with mediums. Well, I'm heartened in terms of get- I'm heartened,
3: uh, no pun intended, heartened to know that that the, the, the cardiologists are actually looking into the near-death experience, um, and in the event. Uh, Congratulations on science and the afterlife experience, evidence for the immortality of consciousness. Chris, always a pleasure to talk to you.
1: Thanks, Richard.
0: A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. we like cats. We need... We need constant petting. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with
2: peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life.